right back on schedule once a year. So this is the people who followed through on their New Year's resolutions. Well done. <laughs> that, that, that's good. Honey, let's try to get to church more often. It's like, oh, next week. We'll start next week. We tend to read scripture through the lens of the individualism that marks our culture, but that's not how the ancient church read it. They viewed it as being about how people engage in community and act as a community. Verse 1 says that, which we didn't read, that this passage is addressed to the church. Do you think with COVID, with the situation with Pastor Andy, with Paul called elsewhere, with the search for a new lead pastor, that we could safely say that Granville's going through a trial? Yes? I think so. <laughs> As a community, we have a big time of change ahead. And I found it to be mostly true that the majority of us travel through life in a little boat made of our daily routine and familiar situations. It feels safe and it gets us where we want to go when the waters of life are calm. But when the storms of life start to swell, our little boat of routine is shown to be the tiny leaky bucket that it is. Coming? <laughs> All right, there we go. And you can even go to the, uh, that, perfect, right now we're on track. Uh, here's a story that illustrates how a person's work routine can be disrupted. This is an accident report that was filled out by a worker who was making an insurance claim. Dear sir, I'm writing in response to your request for additional information for block number three of the accident reporting form. I put poor planning as the cause of my accident. You said in your letter that I should explain more fully, and I trust that the following detail will be sufficient. I'm a construction worker, and on the day of the accident, I was working alone on the top section of a new 40-foot tower. When I had completed my work, I discovered that I had, over the course of several trips up the tower, brought about 300 pounds of tools and spare hardware. Rather than carry the now unneeded tools, and material down by hand, I decided to lower the items down in a small, in a small barrel uh, using a pulley, which fortunately was attached to a pole at the top of the tower. Securing the rope at ground level, I went to the top of the tower and loaded the tools and the materials into the barrel. Then I went back down to the ground and untied the rope, holding it tightly to ensure a slow descent of the 300 pounds of tools. You'll note in block number 11 of the accident reporting form that I weigh 175 pounds. Due to my surprise of being jerked off the ground so suddenly, I lost my presence of mind and forgot to let go of the rope. Needless to say that I proceeded at a rather rapid rate of speed up the side of the tower. In the vicinity of the 20-foot level, I met the barrel coming down. This explains my fractured skull and broken collarbone. Slowed only slightly, I continued my rapid ascent, not stopping until the fingers of my right hand were two knuckles deep into the pulley. Fortunately, by this time, I had regained my presence of mind and was able to hold onto the rope in spite of my pain. At approximately the same time, however, the barrel of tools hit the ground and the bottom was broken off from the barrel. Devoid of the weight of the tools, the barrel now weighed approximately 40 pounds. 
I refer you again to my weight in block number 11. As you might imagine, I began a rapid descent down the side of the tower. In the vicinity of the 20-foot level, I again met the barrel, this time coming up. This accounts for the fractured ankle and lacerations of my leg and lower body. The encounter with the barrel slowed me enough to lessen my injuries when I fell onto the pile of tools, and fortunately, only two vertebrae were cracked. I'm sorry to report, however, that as I lay there on the tools, in pain, unable to stand, and watching the empty barrel 40 feet directly above me, again, I lost my presence of mind and let go of the rope. In this case, the worker labored, uh, labeled this as poor planning. But trials can be sometimes in our control, sometimes not at all. Either way, if we don't navigate them well, they can shipwreck our lives by crushing us with stress and destroying our relationships with each other and with God. No one goes through life without encountering difficult situations. In the book of John, Jesus gave us a realistic picture of our situation. And this is kind of the premise of the whole message this morning. He said, in this world, you will have trouble. But take heart. I've overcome the world. Show of hands. Anyone ever had the circumstances of life smash their lives against the rocks? Congratulations. According to Jesus, you qualify as normal. You will have trouble. Let's take a closer look at the passage that was read to learn what God says about our trials. By way of background, James was the half-brother of Jesus. After the death and resurrection of Christ, he became a church leader. When he wrote this book, the church was being persecuted through the Roman Empire. He's writing to people who were going through numerous difficulties, including being beaten and killed. As we look at the passage, we're going to draw out five nuggets of truth about our response in the difficult circumstances of life. Five lighthouses that can illuminate our course when navigating the storms we face and steer us away from our lives being shipwrecked. Lighthouse number one. We can avoid shipwreck by beginning with the end in mind. Begin with the end in mind is actually a saying from a popular business author, Stephen Covey, in his book, Seven Habits of Highly Effective People. James 1-2 starts with, Consider it pure joy, my brothers, whenever you face trials of many kinds. As we look at verse 2, you need to remember back to the message Mike gave us two weeks ago on joy. Keep in mind what he said as we move into this verse. And I promise not to show the picture of that creepy little dog <laughs> that haunted me all that week. So Mike, if you're listening, I was not good that week because of that creepy little dog picture. Honestly, the first thing that hit me when I started studying this verse is how implausible it actually seems. I mean, come on. James doesn't start us lightly with try to stay strong, do the best you can, but consider it pure joy. I mean, not even regular joy, like pure joy. He wants to get our attention right away. 
Notice also that this process covers all situations. The verse says trials of many kinds. The original Greek language, this was written many kinds is a word that we get our word manifold from. Trials come in multiple forms. There are relational trials and financial trials and physical trials, trials when traveling, trials at home, trials at school or at work. You name the human endeavor and it comes with potential difficulties. The Greek word translated consider is a word that means to think forward. In other words, the reason that I can have pure joy is because I can project into the future and look beyond the current situation to the potential realization of something more. I can begin my response to trials with the end in view. I have to confess that this perspective is not normal for me as I usually can't see anything beyond the trial that I happen to be in. But what do I think forward to? What's the end that I can keep in mind? Verse three and four says, because you know that the testing of your faith develops perseverance. Perseverance must finish its work so that you may be mature and complete, not lacking in anything. James is educating us to play the long game. Playing the long game means you're letting go of the current situation because the prize at the end will be worth the effort, the time, and sometimes the pain. But to take this path, I need to know the destination has to justify the journey. Trials can be considered pure joy not because of what they are, but because of what they do. They put us flat on our backs with only one direction to look, which is up. By stripping us of control, we're given the opportunity to endure. That perseverance inches us closer to maturity and completeness that God is calling us to, which is to reflect Jesus. Looking like Jesus is playing the long game and it has the greatest prize of all. Painful as it is, I can recall, recount many difficult situations that if I had a choice, I would not choose to go through. However, I have to admit that the trial prompted growth in me that wouldn't have happened otherwise. The passage of time, and sometimes a very long time, allowed me to see the event as something other than the immediate experience I was in. It doesn't make what happened good, but it created something unique. Many people I've talked to who have a strong positive sense of, of who they are have shared with me how the difficulties of their lives made the greatest impact on who they actually have become. But for joy to arise, I need a belief and a trust in God. We only develop true trust in someone when something happens that pushes us to lean on them and then they hold us up. It's true in my relationship to others, but it also applies to my relationship with God. But even though trials and testing are inevitable, lighthouse number two, we can avoid shipwreck by understanding help is available. We can avoid shipwreck by understanding help is available. Verse five to eight says, if any of you lacks wisdom, 
He should ask God who gives generously without finding fault and it will be given to him. But when he asks, he must believe and not doubt because he who doubts is like the wave of the sea blown and tossed by the wind. That man should not think he will receive anything from the Lord. He's a double-minded man, unstable in all he does. It's interesting to note that the word if here is in a class condition in Greek that means if and it is so. We would also use the word since. In other words, it says that no one has inherent wisdom. We all lack it naturally. It's like the story of the man who died and went to heaven. He meant St. Peter at the pearly gates who asked him, we know you've made it here by the sacrifice of Jesus. But just for our records, can you tell me of anything you've done of particular merit? And he goes, well, I can remember one thing, the man offered. On a trip to California, I came upon a gang of high testosterone bikers who were threatening a young woman. I decided, or I directed them to leave her alone, but they wouldn't listen. I approached the largest and most heavily, ta heavily tattooed biker and I smacked him on the head and I kicked his bike over and I yelled, back off biker boy or you're going to answer to me. St. Peter was actually very impressed and asked, when did this happen? And he said, oh, a couple of minutes ago. <laughs> Our natural reaction is not wisdom. Like the guy in the story, just reacting often gets us into more difficulties. Again, raise your hand if a difficult situation has ever caused an undesirable reaction in you. Okay, for those sitting around the people who didn't raise their hands, pray for their issue of the sin of lying. I need wisdom to navigate the trials I face, but thankfully, I can tie into the source of all wisdom. This passage teaches us that God will give wisdom no matter who I am. And he gives without any reluctance. However, there's one catch. Unbelief can manifest in a couple of forms. The first is the unbelief that results from independence. I can handle it. How many times have I fallen for that one? Here, God is no more than a backup plan. But doesn't God want me to be self-reliant? I might think that's true unless I actually read what the Bible says. It teaches that I function best not as an independent being, but as an interdependent one. The second is the unbelief that is disguised as reverence for God. I adopt the attitude that God is so majestic and exalted and busy running the universe, he doesn't really care enough to bother with my situation. The passage says that in any form, unbelief makes me unstable. I become double-minded. On one hand, wanting God to work for me, usually to get me out of the situation, and on the other, not thinking he can or he will do anything, well, anything that I like anyway. In that state, I want full control of the outcome. I can't receive God's wisdom because I only want to hear certain messages. To receive wisdom, we must trust ourselves and our situation to whatever God has for us. And that's scary. Lighthouse number three. 
We can avoid shipwreck by understanding where our security lies. Verse 9 to 11 says, The brother in humble circumstances ought to take pride in his high position, but the one who's rich should take pride in his low position because he will pass away like a wild flower. For as the sun rises with scorching heat and withers the plant, its blossom falls, its beauty is destroyed. In the same way, the rich man will fade even while going about his business. What is that about? It seems out of place until I realized how many of the situations and the difficulties we encounter have a relation to money and power. Also, we often indulge in the belief that money can alleviate most of our trials and give us power over life. It's pretty hard to go through a day without some connection to the influence of money. The world considers money and power the number one shield from all trials. We might feel powerless when we don't have humble resources or when we don't have good resources, but this verse is saying we can rest in the knowledge that God owns it all. And that attitude gives us a high position. When finances aren't the issue and I'm rolling in the dough, I can also have a good attitude if I don't find my security in my wealth. By realizing how temporary and fleeting our investments, real estate, Freedom 55 measures are, we can understand our low position. Rather than money being the idol we serve, we serve God, who is our security now and for eternity. This verse is saying, isn't saying that wealth is bad, I mean, for me, if I actually said to God, you know, I can really handle that trial of wealth if you want to give it to me, but he hasn't taken me up in the offer so far. Yet, it does give us a very countercultural perspective. Here's a video of a leader who learned a lesson about their true position. Again, this is the USS Montana requesting that you immediately divert your course 15 degrees to the north to avoid a collision. Over. Please divert your course 15 degrees to the south to avoid collision. This is Captain Hancock. You will divert your course. Over. Negative, Captain. I'm not moving anything. Change your course. Over. So, this is the USS Montana, the second largest vessel in the North Atlantic Fleet. You will change course 15 degrees north, or I will be forced to take measures to ensure the safety of this ship. Over! This is a lighthouse, mate. It's your call. It wasn't easy to find a video with a lighthouse in it, you know. <laughs> in Philippians 4, 12 and 13, the Apostle Paul sums this up well. He says, I know what it is to be in need, and I know what it is to have plenty. I've learned the secret of being content in every situation, whether well-fed or hungry, whether living in plenty or in want, I can do everything who, through Christ who gives me strength. This brings us to lighthouse number four. We can avoid shipwreck by steering in the right direction. 
Verse 12 to 15 says, Blessed is the man who perseveres under trial because when he stood the test, he'll receive the crown of life that God has promised to those who love him. When tempted, no one should say, God is tempting me. For God cannot be tempted by evil, nor does he tempt anyone, but each one is tempted when by his own evil desire he's dragged away and enticed. Then after desire has conceived, it gives birth to sin. And sin, when it is full grown, gives birth to death. The end result of handling trials well is called here the crown of life. I will have overcome the trials that molded my life. These verses contain a warning by contrast. Trials come with accompanying temptations. The trials, as challenging and all-consuming as they seem, expose an even bigger issue that we face. Scripture says in Romans that all have sinned and fallen short of the glory of God. Sin in Scripture is an I problem. It's all about me, I. When I live a self-controlled, self-reliant, self-seeking, self-indulgent life. This is in contrast to steering towards a God-controlled, God-reliant, God-seeking life. The trial doesn't control the choices I make. It's all too easy for me to blame God. This passage preempts my blame and lets me know not to go down that road. Trials are external. They're situations I am in. Temptations are internal. They're my own desires that replace God with myself. The trial doesn't tempt me. That comes from me. Our culture has many messages that say we can justify our actions because of our situations. Scripture elevates, though, taking personal responsibility, but not to fix and control everything, but just to connect to the one who can. To persevere in trials, I need to know that difference between trials and temptations. Our final lighthouse is the surprise twist ending of the passage. We can avoid shipwreck by trusting the one who made the lighthouse also made the storm. Wait, what? This is the big punchline of the passage. As impacting as the first verse of the passage was, this verse closes it with a bang. Verse 16 and 17 says, Don't be deceived, my dear brothers. Every good and perfect gift is from above, coming down from the Father of heavenly lights who does not change like shifting shadows. It starts with an assertion. The words, don't be deceived, are in a construction in Greek that proposes you already are. It literally says, stop wandering. The implication is that my natural state is to wander from the truth that this passage actually teaches. It's good to read scripture, but it's more important to let scripture read us. The context of the passage makes the conclusion inescapable. And it's what I've found to personally be one of the harshest realities in all of scripture. The good and perfect gift from above isn't some unrelated offhand mention of God's generosity. What he's talking about is none other than the trial the passage is about. 
Now, to be fair, the NIV kind of truncates the verse a bit. It actually says in Greek, every giving good and every gift perfect. The giving good refers to the act of giving with the emphasis on the giver. What do I mean? The good God only gives good things since good is his character. Even trials are not random, purposeless occurrences. The word perfect is a, in, in Greek is a word that means complete. God gives trials tailor-made for us, and they will accomplish his plan. This is the same word the Apostle Paul uses in 2 Corinthians 12.19 when he was suffering from what he called a thorn in the flesh, some physical ailment that continually afflicted him. He pleaded three times for God to take it away. God uses that word perfect. He said, my grace is sufficient for you. My power is made perfect. In other words, targeted to accomplish what I will. His power is made perfect in my weakness. This is such a harsh reality that God actually allows the difficulties that at times it's led me to question what kind of a God he is. Especially if the trial I'm experiencing is especially painful. I fall for the false view that it's God who keeps changing. One day he blesses us and the next day he's uncaring. The next day he's not powerful or he's unaware of what Satan is doing. The rest of the verse shows that Despite what I may feel, the reality is that I am on a firm foundation. The reference to the Father of Heavenly Lights is a word picture in Greek that talks about the planets. Ancient astronomers looked at the heavens to tell the seasons and the times and the movement of the celestial bodies were actually constant and they were seen as eternal and even worshipped. This verse says in layman's term that everything else You know, even those seemingly eternal lights in the sky, they'll shift and they'll change. But God, his character and his power, his love and his sovereignty will never change. Here are the five lighthouses from the passage. We can avoid shipwreck by beginning with the end in mind, by understanding help is available, by understanding where our security lies, by steering in the right direction, and by trusting in the one who made the lighthouse and the storm. The five lighthouses, especially the last one, that twist ending that God is the lighthouse and the storm, he's the one who has dominion over all the circumstances of our lives and our guide who will light the way for us like a lighthouse when disaster strikes. He's trustworthy and loving for all eternity. As this community, as Granville, we go through a big time of change and uncertainty. Let's again be inspired and led by Pastor Andy's model of exemplifying everything in this verse. When in spite of the trial of brain cancer, that was far more horrific than any of the trials we are facing, ultimately ending in his passing. He showed us what it looks like to trust it all 
to Jesus and do what this passage teaches? Can we follow his example? I'm going to leave you with the Apostle Peter's summary of this same exact topic. In all this, the trials, you greatly rejoice, though now for a little while you may have had to suffer grief in all kinds of trials. These have come so that the proven genuineness of your faith, of greater worth than gold, which perishes even though refined by fire, may result in praise and glory and honor when Jesus Christ is revealed. Let's pray. Lord, be our lighthouse. Amen. Amen.